We're continuing on in the book of Ruth this morning. A beautiful story about some people who let God write them in his story. We talked last week about everybody having a story. And Lord willing, well last week we looked at the story of Naomi within the bigger picture. And reminded ourselves hopefully that unless we let God write us into his story and give us his lines and let us be a part of the story of redemption, then we're going to end up lives that are, with lives that are bitter. We're going to be upset with the circumstances of life and instead of embracing what God has done for us in Christ. Now we're going to look at another story today within the story, and that is the story of Ruth. Now it's a story about a woman but men, we too can gather information and encouragement and insight from her story. Next week, Lord willing, we'll look at, at Boaz and then t- try to tie everything together. But this, this morning, we're going to look specifically at Ruth and her part of the story. Now, you know she was David's grandma, right? Uh, but she didn't know it at the time. And, um, but how it's, we're going to look at her life. We're going to look at her example we're going to see how she sold herself, in a sense, into a life of suffering because of her love for someone else. The text is going to be chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Ruth, which is the 8th book of the Bible. If you get to Samuel, you've gone too far. But I would like to read three verses out of chapter 1 that is what hurt she said to Naomi when Naomi tried to get her to go back to her own people. But let's ask the Lord's direction and guidance over us this morning. Father, I have a hunch that on our best day, we just get a tiny peek at who you are and how glorious you are and how wonderful you are. That on our best day, we we just slightly appreciate and grasp just the the riches that you've given us in Christ. I pray, Lord, this morning, as we look into your word, that that you would open our eyes even more, that you would show us our need for you, and that you would show us just how wonderful you are to us in Christ. That, Lord, our lives would reflect more back to you and to this world, to just the glories of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Reading from God's Word, Ruth, first chapter 1, verses 15 to 17, and then we'll go into chapter 2 and 3. This is Naomi speaking, and she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And then verse 18, when Naomi saw she was determined to go with her, she said no more. Then they come back to Bethlehem. They come back from Moab to Bethlehem. And we start with chapter 2, verse 1. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. 
And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She's the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from the early morning until now except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you're thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you didn't know before. The Lord repay you for what you've done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you've comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I'm not one of your servants. Verse 14, And at mealtime Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves and don't reproach her. And also pull out some of the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness hasn't forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It's good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest. And she lived with her mother-in-law. I think we'll stop reading there this morning. And we're overlapping week upon week. And most of you know most of the story. Next week we'll look at chapters 3 and 4. And look at Boaz as the Redeemer. And some of you have already expressed to me your enthusiasm for the kinsman Redeemer part of this story. And we're going to get to that. And we'll touch on it a little bit this morning. But I want, to, want us to focus this morning specifically on Ruth and her life, and see how her, when she came and found refuge in the Lord, when she decided to identify with God's people, to identify with the Lord Jehovah, and turned her back on, on her idols, that God put in her heart such a love for Naomi, that she was willing to do anything 
for this woman. And Ruth's story fits into the bigger story of redemption. It's interesting to me that we have a statement in chapter 2, verse 1, about Boaz saying he's a worthy man. And then if you go over in chapter 3, verse 11, we find Boaz telling Ruth, everybody in town knows you're a worthy woman. So over the next two weeks, as we look at the story, the story of Ruth and the story of Boaz, we're looking at two of David's grandparents or great-grandparents. They're both worthy people. They're people whose lives are worth emulating because of the way they lived and the way they served the Lord God. So we're going to look at, if you're, if you're trying to take notes or you just kind of want an idea of where I'm going this morning, if you kind of get lost in all the rabbit trails I go down, we're going to look at three main things. That is God's love expressed through Ruth's life. And then God's love expressed through the life of Jesus Christ. And then the love of God expressed through our lives in light of those other two things. So let's, Lord willing, let's get into this. And, and first of all, let's look at God's love as seen in Ruth. I want you to see from this story, and we read chapter 2, but I'll be referring to 1, 3, and 4 as well. We see in this story that everything she did in her life, I was just amazed as I read and reread and reread this thing. Everything Ruth did in this whole book, she did for Naomi. Now, yes, she ended up getting married and living, quote-unquote, happily ever after. She did end up becoming part of the Davidic Messianic line. She did, in fact, become a part of the line of the Redeemer, which is the big story that's over all stories. All those things happen. But in terms of Ruth's behavior herself, when we look in the book of, this book of Ruth and this story of Ruth, everything she does is for Naomi. Now, it's interesting, we don't see that she loves Naomi. It's not said until the fourth chapter. I think it's verse 11 or 15 in the fourth chapter when everything's all done and everything's all worked out and all the ladies come around Naomi and they're talking to Naomi and they said, you're blessed because this woman who loves you has given you a son. That's the only time in the book of Ruth that it says that Ruth loves Naomi and yet the whole story screams that Ruth loves Naomi. We see it first of all, how she chose to suffer because she loved her. And I mentioned this last week, but we'll go over it again. Remember Naomi, she lost her husband, she lost her two sons. She had no means of support back then in that day and age. If you didn't have a man to support you as a woman, you were in deep distress. Not only did you not have any means of income, you also didn't have any means of protection. You had no standing before the law. You were a person that was totally vulnerable. And that was Naomi's law. And that's why she told Orpah and Ruth, go back and find a husband. You need to go find somebody who will take care of you. She says, I'm going back to Israel. You need to go find somebody. And Orpah, being the logical one, she did what was logical. She went back to Moab to find a husband to take care of her. But I want you to see the the decision that Ruth made. She had already decided, and we're going to see what she says in a minute. She would already decided that God was her God. The Lord Jehovah, the God of Israel, was her God. She wasn't by blood a Jew, but she was by faith a daughter of Abraham in her faith in Jehovah. And so she says, I'm going back with you. Ruth chose, Naomi didn't choose it, okay? In, in God's story, God gave Naomi a part she didn't like and she was bitter. We talked about that last week. But what's striking about Ruth is, Ruth did not choose that life. 
I mean, sorry, Ruth, Ruth chose that life for herself. She could have gone back like Orpah did, but she didn't. She chose to go with Naomi. She chose a life of destitution. She chose a life of poverty. She chose a life of being vulnerable because of her love for Naomi. She expressed that love in that decision to go back. And she said, at the end, and the, the reason I think that she'd already put her faith in Jehovah was when she says in verse 17 of, of chapter 1, May the Lord do so to me and more, if anything but death parts me from you. At that point, she is swearing by Jehovah. She's already made her identification with Jehovah. He's her God. And she says, I'm going with you, whatever it costs. She chose that life of destitution. Her love caused her to choose suffering in order to help alleviate the suffering of someone else. And she backed up her promise with hard work. And we read that in chapter 2. She went out early in the morning, verse 2. She says to, to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean. And as you know, if you know anything about harvesting, nowadays they got the big combines and everything's done and it's fresh and everything and the straw comes out the back end and the grain comes out the other end into the truck and it's all done. Well, back then it took a lot more people and a lot more time. It was all done out in the open. And then when everybody got done, there was some stuff left over that they didn't catch. And the poorest of the poor were allowed to go back behind the harvesters and pick up what they had missed. And this was one of the provisions of the law that shows the compassion of God for the poor in that they were told to allow the poor to go and to glean behind the harvesters. In fact, they were told when they harvested, they were not to go back and get anything they forgot, but to leave it for the poor. And so Naomi was I must have told Ruth about this. And so Ruth asks, when Naomi's permission, let me go out and glean. So she gets up early in the morning. She goes out and works. And she works hard in order to provide for, for Naomi. And we see in verse 7 when Boaz comes out there and says, whose woman is, who's young woman is this? And, and the, the foreman tells the story. She'd been working out there from early morning until the time that Boaz was talking to this foreman, except for a short rest. She put her love in action. She didn't just say to Naomi, I'm going to go with you and I'm going to love you and take care of you. She actually did it. She actually went out and worked. And she backed up her promise with hard work. She worked all day. And Boaz, in, in verse 11 of chapter 2, she had a reputation apparently. He said, I, all that you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And then Boaz, we'll talk about this more next week, but Boaz takes care of her. And and. She eats what she, he provides some food for her. She didn't even bring a lunch with her. She didn't have a lunch to bring with her. I mean, I don't, you and I, three meals a day, maybe four, you know, plus a snack and two desserts and a latte and all that. But Ruth may not have had anything to eat in the morning. She didn't bring anything to eat. So Ruth shows some, or Boaz shows some kindness to her and gives her some grain and she eats it and then she takes what's left over. You know, nowadays we have doggy bags. Back then she just probably put it in a fold of her garment. But she was thinking of Ruth all day long. And so she had more than she needed. She was satisfied, so she puts the rest in. And then she gleans it all. And then she goes back to her mother and brought what food she had left over, verse 18, and gave it to her. Okay, she kept that. And then she took it in. And then verse 23 tells us she did that day in and day out. Got up early in the morning. Worked the whole day long. Worked in the heat of the day poured out her life for this widow. She chose that because she loved her. And she did it until the end of the barley and wheat harvest. Verse 23, 
of chapter 2. I want you to notice also this love for Naomi. Not only was it the decision she made to have a tougher life in order for Naomi not to suffer as much. Not only did she go out and she worked day in and day out, she actually did stuff. She didn't just talk about love. And, you know, John says that to us, doesn't he, in his epistle. Let's not love with words. Let's love with actions. You know, let's not just say we love each other. Let's show. And that's what, that's what Ruth did. But I want you to, know, to, know to notice, too, here, that she put herself at risk. Now, as we said before, a woman without a, a man in that society had no protection. She was vulnerable. This is the time of the judges, remember? That beautiful time, sarcastic, in, in Jewish history when everybody did what was right in their own eyes. There was no king. It's, if you read the book of Judges, it's not a, a pleasant book. There are some, some nice points in there, but it's, it's an awful book. And this is that time. And twice in this passage, in chapter, once in chapter 2, well, twice in chapter 2, um, we see references to the danger that Ruth put herself in to take care of Naomi. Once we see it in verses 8 and 9, when Boaz talks to, to Ruth and he's taking care of her, he says in verse, verse 8, let your eyes be on the field that, that they're reaping, that is, my, the young women that are working for me, Boaz says, and follow after them, go after them. Have I not charged the men not to touch you? Okay. Boaz is helping protect her, but the, the general theme at that time was if you were a woman, you were fair game, if you didn't have a man to protect you. And she's out in the field. She goes out and gleans, knowing full well she could be accosted in. I won't use all the other words, but you get the idea. That, that was life at that time. And she chose to go out and do that for Naomi, putting herself at risk, at great personal danger. And Naomi affirms that in verse 22. When she comes home and tells Naomi what Boaz had said about him, her staying in the field where Boaz's people are working, Naomi says in verse 22, it's good, my daughter, that you go out with his young woman, lest in another field you be assaulted. This was the reality. And yet Ruth chose to do it. She could have stayed in Moab. She could have found a husband. She could have had a, she was a young woman. She could have had a decent life in Moab. But because of, she had taken refuge under the wings of the Lord, as Boaz says in chapter 2, because she took refuge under his wings, she could commit herself to love somebody else. And that's what she did for Naomi. And as you read through this whole story, every decision Naomi does, or Ruth makes, is done for Naomi. Her mother-in-law. Okay? You know, this, we read this in verse chapter 1, we read these verses 16 and 17, you know, where you go, I will go, and your people will be my people. And it's usually two young people who are just so in love, and hopefully they, at least one of them has a job, maybe both of them, and they have all these fairy tales ahead of them and all that. This was said to a woman, by a woman, to her mother-in-law when she was going to a life of deprivation. That's what she said. She loved this woman. A humble woman. She didn't... Why have I found favor in your eyes? Verse 10 of chapter 2. She says to Boaz that you take notice of me since I'm a foreigner. Ruth knew her place. She knew she had no standing. But she knew being even a foreigner with faith 
in the God of all creation. That was enough for her, whatever this life brought. Her self-denial went beyond even what we've talked about. She took the place of a servant, and then she just did whatever her mother-in-law told her to do. Okay? Because she loved her. And we'll read about it next week. And I didn't read it because the passage is kind of long, but start, you start chapter 3 after this whole time with the harvest season. Naomi tells her what to do. And basically she tells Naomi, and we'll read about it next week, and you can read about it on your own this week. Basically Naomi says to Ruth, okay, I want you to go, and I want you to offer yourself to Boaz as his wife. And you can read the details there. And what does what Ruth say? Verse 5. All that you say, I will do. She had so identified with the Lord, with the people of God, with, with Naomi, that she was in 100%. Now, we know she was a young woman. It said at least twice in the book of Ruth that she was a young woman, maybe then. And we know that Boaz wasn't a young a man. How do we know that? We know that in chapter 3. And look in verse 10 here. And Boaz is recognizing the sacrifice that Ruth is making. And I, I, I love this here. Verse 10. He says, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. He's talking to Ruth. You have made this last kindness greater than the first. Well, what's this last kindness? The first kindness was coming back to Israel. The first kindness was going out day in and day out in the heat of day in and day out, working and gleaning, just back-breaking work. Working all day for her. But this last kindness, what's the last kindness? She has just offered herself to him as the only one who can redeem Naomi's land. She's the only hope for redemption for the for Elimelech's um, name in Israel. He's, and she's doing it for Naomi. Now, he says, this last kind is greater than the first, and then he explains why in the second part of verse 10. In that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. So Naomi says to Ruth, this is what you're going to do to redeem our, our name. You're going to go off yourself to this, and I don't know how old he was, but he wasn't the youngest. He wasn't the best looking. Naomi, Ruth chose instead of writing her own happy ever after story, where she lives happily ever after with this young, handsome man, to go and offer herself to the only man she knew who could redeem Naomi's heritage. She chose to deny herself. She poured herself out completely for Naomi's welfare. This is an example of, excuse me, of real love. Hollywood love says, you do so much for me, let's get together and be together. Bible love, godly love says, you have a need. I will sacrifice so that your need can be met. This is an example. This is real love. When you love someone, you suffer so that they won't have to suffer so much. That's God's love expressed through Ruth. And that's just a tiny glimpse picture. That's just a hint of the love that God showed to you and me through the person of Jesus Christ. Why was Ruth such a worthy woman? 
because she let herself be a picture of someone who was far more worthy than she. And she was giving humanity a foretaste, just a picture of what was to come. Centuries later, when the Lord Jesus Christ came, the love God showed through her was a hint of the love he would show to us in Christ. And it's only by understanding Christ's death for you and me that we can truly understand what love is all about. John said that in his first epistle in 1 John 3, 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And he would say that today, too. He wouldn't say, by this we know love, by watching the romantic movies that come out. The world will tell you what love is. Jesus showed us what love is. This is how we know love. That he laid down his life for us. This is the expression of that agape love. That sacrificial love. And Jesus showed it to us in spades. He was the ultimate expression. And there's no better passage that I can think of than Isaiah 53, 4-6. We did this on Saturday morning a couple weeks ago. Listen as I read to you. And listen to how many times there's what we call substitutionary sacrifice. This idea of one person substituting himself for another. This is love. This substitution. Surely he, that is Jesus, has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Do you see how love works? Love takes what somebody else is going to suffer and puts it on himself. That's love. That's how we know what love is. That's how we know what true love is. Christ's death for us is the ultimate expression of what love is all about. Ruth's a picture of it. And it's a beautiful picture of it. And Boaz is next week. We'll look at that and his love. And that's beautiful too. But the picture of love. All of these stories are pointing to the story of redemption in Jesus Christ. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Long fancy word, propitiation means to satisfy the wrath. See, we were under the wrath of God. The love of God in Christ took that wrath and bore it himself. See, Christ didn't die for us in spite of God's love. Christ died for us because God loves us. It's because he loved us. Every religion recognizes the idea of wrath and paying for what you've done. And if you look at any religion, there's, and whether they're sacrifices, many of them they're sacrifices, others there aren't, but the, every religion recognizes you've got to pay for what you do. And if you do something wrong, you've got to pay for it. 
And if you don't, you have a sacrifice that pays for it. But only the gospel says that's right. And God stepped in and paid for it himself. If we talk, when we talk about the love of God, if we're not talking about the atonement, the sacrificial work of Christ, we're not talking about true, true love. Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And he laid down his life. It was a choice he made. He wasn't a victim. He was a sacrifice, but he wasn't a victim. He said in John 10, 17, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. That is love. Not paying the price because you don't have a choice, but paying the price because you choose to pay the price. And that's what God did for you and for me. He chose to bear your sin and my sin upon himself. He laid down his life for his sheep. He, the Lord laid on him the iniquity of all of us. And Jesus willingly accepted that. Do you know that this morning for yourself? You, know, you may think, well, yeah, I know God loves me. And I can tell God loves me because, you know, and you can give me some instances and you can give people examples of things in life that turned out well. But when you really know God loves you, you know that you were condemned to death because of your own sin. You were under the wrath of God for your own rebellion against God's holy law and that you would never be good enough. And Jesus Christ stepped in and said, I'll take all of it, every last bit of it, for you. He took his suffering, our suffering upon himself because he loved us. And that's what true love does. He took upon himself what we deserved so we might receive what he deserved. So there's Ruth's story, the love of God expressed in Ruth, the love of God expressed to us in Christ that we revel in, bask in every day and talk about it. But there's a third part to this story, and that is the love that God wants to express through you and me. You see, we talk about the substitutionary work of Christ, that is, Christ offered himself as a substitute. He took upon himself what we deserve so we wouldn't have to suffer the wrath of God. That's the substitutionary word. But we, when we talk about that, and we revel it, and we should, and we should glory in it, and we'll sing about it for eternity around the throne, and we'll praise God for it, and we'll rejoice in it. But we so often ignore the substitutionary work that he expects of us as his people once we come to Christ. You see, the love Jesus showed to us, he also wants to demonstrate through us. Amen. If your understanding of the gospel is just you finally got that fire insurance policy and you're set for eternity, you can do whatever you want and God will forgive you, you're missing part of the story. God has a people that he has called out for himself to declare the praises of him who called them out of darkness into his glorious light. He wants you and I to live the gospel and not just talk about it. And he was very, Jesus was very clear with his disciples that he expected them to love each other. You remember in John 13, that old foot washing thing. We don't identify with it too much now because we don't wash each other's feet. But it was the bottom job in the Hebrew servant. It was the bottom 
And Jesus did it for his disciples. And you can read the story in John 13, and Peter has a fit and says, you'll never do this. And Jesus says, oh, if I don't do it, then you're not one of me. And he says, well, like, give me the whole bath then. And, you know, Peter's just going from one end to the other. He doesn't get it at all. But I want you to understand, it was the worst job. Pick your worst job. That, that, that's the foot washing. But then, he says it a little bit later in the, in the chapter, and I have, don't have the verse written down, but he says, if, then, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, so also you ought to wash one another's feet. He says, I did it for you. Now you do it for each other. And then he closes it out, that section. He says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do. And then he goes a little further that night. It's recorded in the 15th chapter of John, verse 12. And he gets more specific. This is my commandment, 15, John 15, 12. That you love one another. Wait for it. As I have loved you. The more you revel in what God has done for you in Christ, the more you realize the price that Jesus paid for you as a human being, as God in the flesh, bearing in his body your sin, the more, what's the right word? The more you realize what a big job we have in loving one another. Because Jesus says we're to love each other as Christ loved us. Some of us have a hard enough time just saying hi to Okay? But we've been called, this love, we've been called to share in the sufferings of Christ for the benefit of others. And we have some examples in Scripture. Listen to what Paul says in Colossians 1, 24, about this idea of substitutionary suffering. This idea of taking on somebody's suffering. Paul says, I rejoice in what I'm suffering for you. He's talking to Christians, okay? He says, I rejoice in what I'm suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regards to Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, which is the church. What is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. That doesn't mean that Christ's sacrifice wasn't complete and it didn't pay the total price for all of humanity. For whosoever will, Whoever God calls, who responds to that call and chooses to repent and believe by God's grace, the sacrifice of Christ is complete and full and it covers everything and you never have to earn anything before God. And yet here it talks about what's lacking in regards to Christ's affliction. I think what Paul's talking about is there is a, a part of the job that the church has to do in continuing to live out and express the atonement in daily lives. We're not earning anybody's salvation. But we are living out this love that takes upon ourselves the suffering of others so that they don't have to suffer so much. And Paul rejoices in it. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, Paul basically says in terms of preaching the gospel and living out the gospel, he says, the love of Christ compels us. Paul said, I can't help it. The love of Christ is in me, and I've got to love other people, even if it means I get beat, I get whipped. I've got to share the gospel with people because they need it. The love of Christ compels us. John in his epistle, in 1 John chapter 3, verse 16, he had heard Jesus say this 
straight from Jesus' mouth. And then he goes on to write to, to the believers there in 1 John 3.16, and he says, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. John says, that's how we know what love is. And then he says, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Jesus said, love one another as I love you. And John's carrying on that same commandment. He says, we know what love is. We, we look at the cross. We know what real love is. And he says, brothers and sisters, we ought to be doing that with each other. Now, in case you haven't discovered it yet, this kind of love is costly. This is expensive love. I, Ephesians chapter 4. You know, the first three chapters in Ephesians, there's not a commandment in it. There's not one thing to do. You just sit down with the book of Ephesians and you open it up and you start reading what God's done for us in Christ and how he's planned everything out and he chose us before the foundation of the world to be complete in Christ. And he lays out the, the supremacy of Christ and how when we were dead in our transgressions and sins, he made us alive in Christ and he seated us with him in the heavenlies. And he, Paul just goes on and on and on and on and on. Just this glorious inheritance that we have because of what Christ has done for us. He bought that for us with his own blood. And then you get to chapter four and then Paul starts giving us the commandments and he starts out by saying, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. He says, in light of all of that, we ought to be living the right way. There, there's a worthy way to live. Ruth was a worthy woman. Boaz was a worthy man. And, and now we have this call from Paul to the church. Live a life worthy of the calling. Guess what's in, chap- what, guess what's in verse 2 of chapter 4? Right off the bat, bearing with one another in love. Paul was a realist. We are all sinners, saved by grace, who are still learning how to live like children of the kingdom. And it's going to take a lot of bearing with one another. But that's part of living a life worthy of the calling. Well, what's this calling? Christ took all of your suffering upon himself. So now, let's do that with each other. Not in a salvation way, but just in a life-giving way way, loving way to one another, bearing with one another in love. This is what Timothy Keller says in his book, Jesus the King. If you ever try to love someone who's in trouble or who is persecuted or emotionally wounded, it's going to cost you. You can't love them without taking a hit yourself. A transfer of some kind is required. There are a lot of wounded people out there. They're emotionally sinking, they're hurting, and they desperately need to be loved. And when they're with you, you want to look at your watch and make a graceful exit because listening to them with all their problems can be grueling. You're laughing because you've been there, haven't you? It can be exhausting to be a friend to an emotionally damaged person. The only way they're going to start filling up emotionally is if somebody loves them. And the only way to love them is to let yourself be emotionally drained. Some of your fullness is going to have to go into them and you have to empty out to some degree. If you hold on to your emotional comfort and simply avoid these people, they will sink. The only way to love them is through substitutionary sacrifice. The only way is to take their suffering on yourself so that they don't have to suffer so much. 
So how do you and I get to a place like that? How do we get to a place of willingly and purposefully taking on the sufferings of others? It's not something that comes naturally. Well, how did Ruth do it? Ruth took refuge under the wings of the God of Israel. Boaz says that in chapter 2, verse 12. We saw that. The Lord repay you, he says to Ruth, for what you've done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you've come to take refuge. She took shelter in Jehovah. She put her total confidence in him. And because her confidence was in the God of Jehovah, even though she was a foreigner, her love flowed out of that security that she had. Her sacrifice flowed from that security. Her resolve to love flowed from her rest in Jehovah. She knew who she was. She was just a foreigner. She didn't deserve anything, but God had called her. And because she knew who she was, she could be who she was to Naomi. Jesus is the same way. He said, well, that's not fair. He was God. Well, he, he was God, but he was a human being too. He was a perfect human being who knew what human beings were made for. And they were made to depend on God and glorify God. And he lived it out perfectly. And it's, I find it interesting, back to the story about the foot washing in John chapter 13, verses 3 and 4. I love this. I, I got so many favorite verses, but these are some of them. Now listen carefully. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper, laid aside his garments, taking a towel, tied it to his waist, and began to wash the feet. He did what he did because he knew who, who he was. He knew that the Father had given him this commission. He knew that he was going back to the Father. He knew who he was. He was secure in who he was. He knew that he was going to the cross and he was going to suffer excruciating pain, both physical and emotional and spiritual. But he knew who he was. He knew who had his life in his hands. And he knew he was going to come out the other side okay. So he got up and did the worst job that you could imagine in Jewish society. Ruth loved because she knew who she was. She'd taken refuge in the Lord. Jesus loved us completely because he knew who he was. And he knew who was taking care of him. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He was looking beyond the suffering to what was to come. That's the only way you and I are ever going to love each other the way we're supposed to. We've got to come to the place where we know who we are. We can't serve each other, truly serve each other in love until we're resting in Christ and in Christ alone. Because until that happens, we're going to be scrambling to keep our lives together. We're going to hang on to our resources because somebody's got to take care of us. And if I don't take care of myself, who's going to take care of myself? But once we enter into that, the fullness that if we seek the kingdom of God, he will take care of our every need, not our every want, but our every need. Then we seek the kingdom of God and we begin to love each other. And we don't cling to our own resources. Until we learn to rest in God, we're going to want recognition from other people. Until knowing that well done from the God of the universe is enough. Until we know that, 
We're still going to be running around looking for other people to tell us we're okay. We're going to be trying to protect our reputation. We're going to be demanding respect. We're going to be tearing other people down so that we can look a little bit better because we're just not quite, not quite sure we're okay. But when we come and we fully come into that realization that when Christ died for us on the cross, that we received all His merit, we received His righteousness, that when we stand before God, God sees Christ. That's our inheritance, and it's ours. And when we see that, and when we really get a hold of that, who can touch us? Who can hurt us? What can we lose? we give away everything, he'll take care of us. Now that doesn't mean we shouldn't be wise. But what it means is all too often we're hanging on for dear life to the reputation and the resources and the time that we have because we're just trying to build this little life. We're trying to create our own little story instead of finding ourselves lost and allowing ourselves to be lost in the story of redemption in which God wants us to have a part taking on the suffering of others so that the gospel can be seen in human bodies. Philippians 2. Paul's writing to the church at Philippi. He wants them to look out for each other. Notice what he says here in Philippians 2, 1 through 5. And I'll close. Notice how he starts it out. He's aiming at, hey you guys, I want want you to, to look out for each other. But notice how he starts. If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the, in the Spirit, if any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, ready for it, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Because Ruth took refuge under the wings of the God of Israel, she could pour out her life in service to Naomi. She was a worthy woman who was included in the lineage of the Messiah. And in that Messiah, you and I can find refuge. We can find forgiveness for our sins because he bore all the punishment upon himself. We have hope for eternity because he took everything upon himself that would keep us from enjoying that eternal hope. And when you and I fully take refuge in Christ, not just in our heads, but in our hearts, we can then pour out our lives for others, taking their suffering upon ourselves in the name of Christ and for his glory. Let's pray. Oh Lord, how far we are from what you created us to be. We know that we are new creatures in Christ and yet how, how, 
tough a time we have letting that new creature get out. And I just pray, Lord, that this example of Ruth would challenge us to, to a love that's sacrificial. That, that, that the, the gaze of Christ, that as we gaze upon him again anew and afresh, as we thank you again for what you've done and bearing everything upon yourself that was due us in terms of your wrath, that, Lord, it would prompt us and stir us, Lord, to live lives that are worthy of that, lives that show that you did create us to love other people in a way that bears their suffering upon ourselves. Lord, we thank you that it's possible in Christ. We pray for your Holy Spirit to stir us up and to not let us be comfortable until we give ourselves completely to you and to each other. For your glory, in Jesus' name, amen.